Uh, if you remember, the Apostle John was told to write to seven congregations in Asia, in Turkey, Asia Minor. And uh, we've been looking every week at what he wrote to one of those churches. And the church we're looking at today is the church in Sardis. Thank you, sir. Sardis was the ancient kingdom of Lydia. Uh, Sardis is mentioned in the Bible and Lydia is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Lydia was very famous in ancient history. It was known for its excessive wealth. In fact, people were trying to figure out how the Lydians got so rich. Well, they had a lot of gold in their empire. In fact, they were so wealthy that they had to figure out a way to deal with all their wealth. So they invented something to help them deal with it called money, specifically coins. You know, check this out. This was only, you know, a couple thousand years ago. So when you think of human history from a biblical perspective, which, of course, is the only true perspective, human history, we've only been around 6,000 years or so, not millions of years. And so it makes sense then that it took a while for society to say, we got to do something better for trade and commerce. And so if you have a coin in your pocket and any time you spend one, you're actually holding in your hand, in a sense, a little piece of history because the ancient Lydians invented the coins. Our coins represent value. Their coins were value. Their coins were made out of precious metal. Our coins are a promise. <laughs> and one day somebody's going to realize the emperor, he ain't got no clothes. <laughs> and this house of cards is all going to come tumbling down. Um, the king over the Lydian Empire at this famous time in history was a guy named Croesus. And the legend is that Croesus became wealthy by mining the water from the river that King Midas washed his hands in. Midas is the guy whose everything he touched turned to gold, and apparently he wanted to get healed from this malady, so he went to the river to wash his hands, and that river then became a river filled with gold. Back in those days, if you wanted to say somebody was really rich, you'd say, man, that guy's got more money than Croesus. Today, it'd be kind of like, man, that guy's got more money than Bill Gates. So the Lydians were like the Americans, and Croesus was like Bill Gates, to give you an idea of what their empire was like. Croesus, though, King Croesus, wasn't a follower of God, and so he made a very serious mistake, which caused him and his empire to be destroyed. He went to the Oracle of Delphi to have a prophecy about going to war against the Persians. And the Oracle said, there will be great victory, go. And so he went to war because the oracle told him to go, and he was soundly, and his empire was soundly defeated. <laughs> Their butts were whooped by the Persians. You know, the Bible says, how do we know if a prophet's from God or not from God? And it gives us a bunch of ways to know. One of the ways is, if the thing the prophet says doesn't come to pass, you know that prophet is not from God. Do not fear them. Well, the oracle of Delphi gave a bad prophecy, so that should have put him out of business. But people, you know, people don't care. They, they do what they want to do regardless of the facts. But the oracles and the false prophets of today, they're kind of smart. They don't give you the details that can't be looked at from one of three different perspectives. For example, imagine one of the generals surviving and going back into the oracle. You said we'd win. The oracle said, I never said you'd win. I said there would be a great victory, and there was. Persians won. 
You know, they do that kind of thing so that you can, oh, yeah, I see. So much for Croesus. So there's this uh, interesting quote about the kingdom of Sardis. Remember, John's writing a letter to Sardis. I want you to understand Sardis's history so you can appreciate what he has to say to them from a different perspective. This is from the uh, famous Bible commentator William Barclay. He says this, The great characteristic of Sardis was that even on pagan lips, Sardis was a name of contempt. Its people were notoriously loose-living, notoriously pleasure-in-luxury-loving. Sardis was a city of decadence. I guess Sardis was the, the Las Vegas of their day. It was the San Francisco of their day. But you've got to understand, in the ancient Greek world and the ancient Roman world, it was predominantly filthy, sexually and morally loose. So if Sardis had a reputation for being loose amongst people that are loose, it must have been really bad. So Sardis was this, oh yeah, they're the rich, wealthy, bad people. Not, not just bad because they're rich and wealthy, because, you know, people who aren't rich and wealthy always hate people who are rich and wealthy, always jealous of them. But they just, they didn't live good, wholesome lives. Here's another quote um, from David Guzik's commentary. This softness, this lack of discipline and dedication was the doom of Sardis. They're kind of lackadaisical because life was so easy. You know, if you're a watchman and nobody ever threatens your post, you don't become, well, you, you just kind of fall asleep on the job. You read. You stop looking out. You just, you get lazy. It's one of those things that happens. And Sardis was in the lap of luxury, and it got lazy. They figured they were safe because they were, the, the city was like on, on a mountain with these basically unscalable cliffs. So all you had to do was make sure the main entrance was guarded and you were fine. So they thought. And so their watchmen kind of were lazy, knew nobody could challenge them. So guess what Antiochus the Great did? He just climbed the cliffs. Nobody was watching. There was like some secret ways up. He found them. Now, had there been a watchman who wasn't sleeping on the job, so you'd think they'd learned their lesson. Antiochus the Great, roughly the third century BC, Persians did the same thing. <laughs> Persians got them too. So the Persians first, Antiochus. This city just kept falling from laziness, from apathy. You know, if somebody comes and opens your living room window and breaks into your house and steals all your Christmas presents, you think next year you might secure that window a little better? And what would you think of the person who doesn't? And then their stuff gets stolen again. You kind of, you know, you, you might pity them the first time. The second time, you just think, what an idiot. You knew they had a way to get in, and you didn't do anything about it. That's kind of how I felt about Lydia. Not that they deserved it, but man, they could have avoided it, and they didn't. George Santayana, this most famous of quotes, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. This is to keep that from happening to us. That's why God gave it to us. So we can remember the past and not be 
condemned to repeat it. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel or representative of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Okay, if you remember, there was a seven-point outline. Each church that John wrote to followed a pattern. He'd mention to the angel of the church in Sardis. He'd mention the representative. He'd mention the church. He'd mention their good deeds. He'd mention their bad deeds. And then there was like three other points in each one. He'd tell them, you know, keep doing the good, stop doing the bad. He'd threaten them. And then he'd offer them like a reward. But there's nothing good to say about Sardis. There are no good deeds mentioned in the outline of Sardis. It just goes straight to the meat of the matter. You've got a great reputation. You're alive. But I know better. You're dead. The church in Sardis looked like a good church. If you ask any of the other churches, hey, what about the church in Sardis? Oh, yeah, it's a good church. You know, you're moving to Sardis. Join the church of Sardis. It's a good church. No, it wasn't a good church. It was a dead church. It looked alive, but it was dead. It was a zombie church. Well, no, because zombies don't look good. So this is a well-dressed zombie church. They were really dead, but they didn't look really dead. Proverbs 20, but they had a reputation of being alive. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. But I like the way the Good News Bible puts it. It says, if you have to choose between a good reputation and great wealth, choose a good reputation. But the point isn't have a good reputation even though you don't deserve it. The point is have a good reputation because you do deserve it. They took a shortcut. <laughs> they, they, they were liars. They were deceivers. They were self-deceived. They're like the uncle everybody loves, but doesn't realize he's got a rap sheet this long and he's dangerous. I can't help but think that there's got to be a lot of churches like that today. Churches that look good, but really they're not good. They're dead. Uh, maybe you know some churches like that. Maybe you've been part of a church like that. But I have to ask myself, are we a church like that? I'd like to think not. But I got to wonder. I mean, I'm not. Am I? You know, am I asleep at the helm thinking I'm fine? Am I the guard who's reading the comic book? Or am I the guard who's on watch? Are we the church that's asleep at the helm? We have to ask ourselves these things. We have to. Because I'm sure the people in Sardis thought they were fine too. So if it's possible to think you're fine and you're not, somebody's got to get real and we have to ask ourselves. Verse 2. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Jesus told the church in Sardis to wake up. They were asleep at the wheel. And his choice of words, I don't think were accidental. Remember, Sardis was asleep, and the Persians came in. Sardis was asleep, and Antiochus came in. And now the church of Sardis is asleep, and the devil's coming in. 
He's telling them, wake up! So I think Sardis was overcome simply by comfort and apathy. It does happen. As you know, not too long ago uh, in Houston, the mayor subpoenaed sermons by a group of pastors and said if they didn't turn over their sermons, they would face fines and jail time. And then in another community, a couple of ministers were told that if they don't perform gay marriages, which are against their religion, that they too will be fined and jailed. So a bunch of pastors got together to discuss what's going on in our country and how the government, in certain instances, is coming against Christianity, against the church. And one of the guys that was there, one of the keynote speakers, was um, former Governor Huckabee. As you know, he also ran for president. He's a sharp guy. Um, Mike Huckabee, I've got some of his words at that conference. Listen to what he said. It's time to wake up from our slumber. While Mayor Parker may have overstepped her bounds... That was only possible because the church had fallen asleep at the gate. Our greatest problem is not in the White House. It's in God's house. If you're wondering why things like this are happening in cities like Houston, Fayetteville, and San Antonio, look in the mirror. The blame for this doesn't rest with Anise Parker or the city, but every Christian who has quietly stepped into the shadows on tough truths. It's because a lot of people in our churches have said, I just don't want to get involved. Wow, go Huckabee. Is he right? I don't know. Is the problem really not the White House? Is it really our house? I don't know. I know it's definitely the White House, but is it definitely our house too? You can't just dismiss what was said to Sardis. And you can't just dismiss what a great man like Huckabee has to say. We got to think on it a little more. So Sardis was more dead than alive, but there was still hope. The paddles were coming out, and Jesus was yelling, clear! There was still hope. They weren't totally gone. So Jesus gives the remedy to the church at Sardis. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but I want to talk to you about that word, a strengthen, for a minute. It's, it's a bigger word in the Greek language than in the English language. Our word strengthen is not good enough to communicate what this Greek word communicates. Here's the range of meaning for the Greek word. Uh, to be determined, resolute, set in place or established, confirm. So more completely, the idea is this. Jesus is saying you're not totally dead Firmly establish what is good in you. Set it in place, confirm it, be resolute, and strengthen it. There was still hope for Sardis. Verse 3, he says, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Remember what you have received and heard, and obey it, and repent. But if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So Jesus is basically saying, you're almost dead. There's a little hope left. Strengthen it, work on it, nurture it, bring it back to life, or I'm coming. And I'm not coming with a smile on my face. I'm coming to take you out. So his remedy is basically a three-part remedy. First part is remember. 
The second is obey. And the third is repent. That's what he told Sardis. And I think for the church in America, or at least the churches in America that look like they're alive but are really dead, this is a great formula. Remember, obey, and repent. Remember what? He specifically says, what you've received and heard. Well, whatever they received. First thing that came to my mind was John. John says, yet all who received him to those who believed in his name, he gave the, gave the right to become the children of God. They received Jesus, but they'd forgotten all about him, really. So he says, remember what you received. And remember what you heard. Well, what did they hear? Well, they heard the gospel, and they heard sound doctrine. They learned how to walk with God, but they forgot. So he's telling them to remember. Because you know those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. They forgot how to follow God. Verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So not all of Sardis was asleep. The church was more dead than alive, but there were still some good people, some faithful people in the church. That happens a lot. There are churches that, you know, let's say the church has 500 people in it. There may be 10 or 15 or 20 good people still left in that church. It's hard for them. At all the meetings, it, you know, they're the lone voice. They're frustrated with the sermons because the pastor doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Pardon me. But Jesus is saying, for even a church like that, there's hope. Because that can nurture and grow. I like the words, you have not soiled their, they have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white. Archaeology has dug up inscriptions from this region, from temples and about temples. And it said, if you, you may not enter this temple with soiled garments. It was an affront to the deity. So the idea is, when you come before God, they won't even let you in the temple if you're not clean. And the priests themselves always served in clean white garments. For us, the parallel is very similar. Our souls are considered dirty until we turn from our sins and turn to Jesus. And then because of what Jesus did for us, he takes away our sin, and then our souls are considered pure. The, the book of Revelation uses this metaphor more than once. Listen, I'm in um, chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and were holding palm branches in their hands. And then verses 13 through 14. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? And he said, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So spiritual purity is rec represented in white robes. It's kind of like when we get to heaven, the metaphor is 
you know, we're going to take off our dirty clothes. Jesus is going to give us a new set of clothes. I guess in today's language, it'd be like getting out of your ratty jeans and smelly t-shirt and putting on a tux. That would be the metaphor for our culture. Nice, shiny shoes. Then Jesus tells the church in verse 5, he who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. So he's saying there's still hope. You can be an overcomer. Those who are already awake, they are already the overcomers. Especially if you're in a church full of sleepers. Because you're standing strong. Not too long ago, up on Facebook, I put up a song that really encouraged me. Inspired me in my faith about being an overcomer. Because that's, that's who I want to be. I want to be the overcomer. I don't want to go down with this world. I want to I I rise to the top. Somebody put on Facebook, go ahead, throw me to the wolves. I'll come back leading the pack. It's like, yeah. So we Christians are the overcomers. Let me share with you that video that I put up on Facebook. I hope you like it as much as I did. Do.
Amen. First John 5, 3 through 5. This is the love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who, he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Don't quit. Hang in there. Be an overcomer. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Stand up, stand tall, stand strong. Look for Jesus because he's coming back. And when he comes back, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter you the joy of the Lord. Please bow your heads for the benediction. And now may the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace.